The number of new cases of COVID-19 in Virginia continue to rise every day by around 1,000, according to numbers released by the Virginia Department of Health. On July 28th, they announced that there were 1,505 new cases, the highest one-day total for all of July. Later on that day, both the Albemarle County Board of Supervisors and the Charlottesville City Council voted to take steps to try to slow the spread before the University of Virginia students begin to return. Falling numbers of cases for 14 days is needed before we know that we're starting to make progress. What this local ordinance would do would be to capture almost all indoor public spaces. I'm Sean Tubbs, the creator of the Charlottesville Podcasting Network and your host for this program and others that may soon be happening. Since March, I've been putting together this show to capture as much as I can of what's going on during the pandemic. Many have questions that have been asked since the beginning. This is from an Albemarle County School Board Forum on July 27th. Can you explain to anyone that might be listening and not understand how serious this disease is? Could you go into that? On today's show, coverage of the supervisor and council meetings, as well as a quick drop-in on the Albemarle School Board's third and final forum before their final vote on opening schools, or not, for the next school year. Thanks for listening, and let's get going. First, a quick update on some information. The Virginia Department of Health reported another 1,505 cases of COVID-19 on July 27th, the highest one-day total for all of July. That number decreased to 922 the following day. The seven-day average for positive tests is at 7.3 as of July 28th. In the Thomas Jefferson Health District, another 48 cases were added on July 27th for a cumulative total of 1,648. Governor Ralph Northam will speak at 2 p.m. today at a press conference to give updates on Virginia's response to COVID-19. He last held such an event on July 14th. Northam was in Hampton yesterday to unveil a $70 million grant package for small business that comes from the Federal CARES Act. The Rebuild VA program will help up to 7,000 applicants cover costs associated with the pandemic. This grant program will provide up to $10,000 for small businesses and nonprofits to help them meet existing or unpaid expenses such as back due rent or utility payments. The funding can also be used to prepare for and respond to this new environment, whether that means purchasing PPE or hand sanitizers for employees or pivoting to a new business model to better serve their customers. To be eligible, businesses must not have received federal loans from the Paycheck Protection Program or other such initiatives. The University of Virginia will reopen its Aquatics and Fitness Center and other athletic facilities on August 3rd, according to a report on the Cavalier Daily. Members of the AFC will need to reserve a space and space will be limited. Other areas that will reopen are the Snyder Tennis Courts and the artificial turf fields at the park. And now, our main feature for today. The Albemarle County Board of Supervisors and the Charlottesville City Council have both voted to limit occupancy in indoor restaurants and to require facial coverings in indoor spaces. The new resolutions were also endorsed by University of Virginia President Jim Ryan, even though the new rules are not binding on grounds. Deputy County Attorney Andy Herrick said Albemarle's ordinance change has three main components. The first is a limit of occupant, indoor occupancy at food establishments, wineries, breweries, and distilleries. 
it would provide for a limit of 50% occupancy. The second provision in section five is a limitation on gatherings. While phase three statewide limits gatherings to 250 people, uh, the proposed ordinance would limit gatherings to 50 people. Herrick said those exceptions are for outdoor food establishments, farm wineries, farm breweries, religious exercises, weddings, and for public demonstrations. Finally, Section 6 of the proposed ordinance would have a face covering requirement to require face coverings at indoor public places and outdoor public places um, which do not have, uh, at which um, six-foot physical distance is not um, possible. Exceptions include residences, gyms, schools, religious institutions, and the county courthouse building. The ordinance had been modified since the board last took it up last week, with input from Albemarle County's Commonwealth's attorney, Jim Hingley. Supervisor Donna Price of the Scottsville District likened the ordinance before the board as a high-wire act. I believe as supervisors, we have a responsibility for health and welfare, as well as looking at the economic impact and that we, we are walking a bit of a tightrope here and trying to ensure that we take enough action without taking too much action. If we don't take enough action, then we run the risk of our residents being infected and having the spikes here that the rest of the country is seeing. If we go too far, then we have the, the potential uh, of too much economic adverse impact. Supervisor Price said she also had to weigh the impact of thousands of UVA students returning to the community. Supervisor B. Lopisto-Kirtley of the Ravana District said she had not heard any pushback from restaurant owners that she had heard from. She said her goal in supporting the ordinance is to eventually reopen the economy. I think we've gone above and beyond to address the issues to keep our community safe, but also to, to support the businesses and make sure that they can continue uh, thriving and, and hopefully if we can get everything down further that we can open up everything. Supervisor Ned Galloway of the Rio District urged anyone opposed to the ordinance to read it carefully before it goes into effect at midnight on August 1st. And I don't want folks to either think we're being overly restrictive or not restrictive. Uh, whether you're for this ordinance or against this ordinance, I hope everybody will be um, mindful to read through to know exactly what it is and isn't doing. Supervisor Liz Palmer of the Samuel Miller District suggested signage be drafted for businesses so they can point to this as a county regulation. So that their personnel um, have something to back them up. I know it's very, very difficult in a lot of situations for employees in these businesses to stop somebody and say, you can't have a, you must wear a mask to come in. So with the sign, it's, it's, it's helping them out. We'll see that this is an ordinance. This is a county ordinance to do this. Supervisor Ann Malik of the Whitehall District said she would have supported a more restrictive ordinance because she is concerned the state is not hitting the health metrics that would guide good public policy. The one set of numbers has been consistent since the very beginning. And we have been told since the very beginning of this virus that falling numbers of cases for 14 days is needed before we know that we're starting to make progress. And we had, that has been our goal to get this going. It's not all these competitive kinds of, competing kinds of statistics. Supervisors voted unanimously to support the ordinance, which goes into effect at midnight on August 1st and will last for a period of 60 days. 
Herrick said the county is still looking into a policy to allow for restaurants to open more temporary outdoor seating. The ordinance does not affect the school system, who held the third in a series of town hall meetings on July 27th to discuss potential options for the upcoming school year. The school board will hold a final meeting on July 30th to make a decision, as will their counterparts in Charlottesville. UVA President Jim Ryan sent an email to the Borden Council stating support for the ordinances. He wrote, It has become a cliché to say that we are in this together, but in our case, the actions of a few people on grounds or in the community really can affect everyone else. Supervisor Galloway said he welcomed the partnership. And as I know, those students return, um, as he said, some of the coming months could be challenging, so it's important that that partnership remains strong and we work together as we um, to keep our community safe. Less than an hour later, four of the five city councilors met to discuss a similar ordinance. City attorney John Blair described their draft as having stricter guidelines than those put forward by Governor Ralph Northam in Phase 3, which Virginia entered on July 1st. Like Albemarle's ordinance, the cities will also limit in-person gatherings to 50 or less. What this local ordinance would do would be to capture almost all indoor public spaces. The city's ordinance has language that covers councilors' desire to make sure that not wearing a mask would not be an offense that would result in incarceration. Blair said Albemarle's ordinance states that a violation would be a Class 1 misdemeanor, which could lead up to a year of jail time. Instead, in the city, it will be a Class 3 misdemeanor. Councilor Lloyd Snook said he had been contacted by restaurant owners about the ordinance, which he supported because physical distancing rules also limit capacity by reducing available space. My, my suspicion is, number one, it's not going to hurt them, and number two, that it's going to help them if they, are try- if they are truly trying to enforce uh, what the law would require. Deputy City Manager Paul Oberdorfer said Charlottesville and Albemarle will collaborate on a variety of efforts. One is an ambassador program to promote public awareness. And essentially spinning up uh, a joint effort to um, educate, inform, uh, reinforce uh, the idea of wearing masks and following the guidelines uh, out in businesses as well as public gatherings uh, in places where people will will be out in the public. And uh, as part of that uh, proposal, there was two elements to it. Uh, One would be a contracted service with a third party. Uh, that we're proposing. And the other piece to that would be also using available staff within uh, the park and rec uh, department that uh, their customer service agents, they're familiar with uh, public engagement. Oberdorfer said it was important to have a consistent message between the two localities and the same contractor would manage the program in both the city and the county. During their deliberations, Councillor Snook said the metrics in the area may not necessarily tell epidemiologists what is going on. New cases continue to rise rather quickly, but they're not reflecting in new hospitalizations or additional deaths. And so the question, I suppose, is, and what I'd love to be able to ask Dr. Bonds or somebody is, are we seeing a lot of marginal, technically uh, COVID, but not not really symptomatic cases because we're doing contact tracing now. And is the situation truly different from the way it was a month ago? Charlottesville Mayor Nakia Walker was absent from the meeting, 
The city's ordinance also goes to effect on August 1st. You're listening to the Charlottesville Quarantine Report for July 28, 2020. Yesterday, the Albemarle School Board held the last of three town halls on the county school system's plans for the upcoming school year. Currently, the idea is for students to return to class on September 8th if they choose on a hybrid model that would see them at school for only a few days out of the week. But the county is also preparing for plans for going online only. The school board meets on July 30th to make a final decision. At the beginning of the meeting, Dr. Denise Bonds of the Thomas Jefferson Health District was on hand to talk about the latest statistics. She also talked about how younger people are affected by COVID-19. So right now, it looks like children do pretty well with COVID-19. Those kids that get it seem to have milder symptoms, um, perhaps a little bit more GI symptoms, um, lower levels of fever. Uh, They tend to recover quickly, and they tend to have fewer um, complications associated with that. So now let's talk just a minute about what can be done to make it safe for kids to go back to school. Uh, There have been a number of organizations that have weighed in on this across uh, the country. Most recently, the National Academy of Sciences has released a summary of evidence and some suggestions, uh, and um, the American um, Pediatrics Association has also put out guidance. Uh, So overall, um, what we see is the suggestion that all schools adopt a culture of health And that um, is composed of normalizing uh, the fact that we all get sick from various things. And so removing incentives to come to school um, when you're sick. So not having perfect attendance awards, making sure that teachers don't have any repercussions if they stay home when they're ill, that there's plenty of uh, sick leave and that there are uh, substitute teachers when needed. The second is to normalize the wearing of masks Uh, for kids. Um, I am told, I'm not a pediatrician, I'm an internist, so an adult doctor, but I'm told by pediatricians and those that work with kids that kids actually um, take to wearing masks pretty well if it's normalized and that's what everybody is doing. Uh, And so to the degree that that can be adopted in a school setting, that makes it much easier to keep kids safe. And then social distancing, um, trying to keep kids uh, six feet apart, Um, to make sure that when they do breathe heavily, when they do aerosolize particles, because we do know this disease is spread through aerosolization, um, that there's far enough away that they're not going to be directly impacted by that. Other items that um, bodies have suggested that could help would be to cohort kids together in small groups so that if you do have an individual that gets sick, whether that be a teacher or a student, that it's a small group of individuals that are impacted by that illness. Um, To the degree that uh, kids and teachers can stay together as a cohort, I think that's a really good idea. I know that's challenging when you have teachers who specialize in things like arts or in the upper grades where you have different subject matter experts. Um, Suggestions are keeping the kids in the same classroom, trying to have the teachers rotate around with appropriate hygiene between classrooms by the teachers. Uh, so that you minimize the spread um, to the degree that you can have lunches done in classrooms. So again, you have minimized interaction between kids um, between classrooms. 
outdoors is great. Um, when you're outdoors, you're spreading all of those, uh, those aerosols are being spread by air currents. And so um, the more classes that can be done in an outdoor setting, uh, the better. I, I say that knowing it's 95 degrees outside and no one wants to be outside, but um, it really does help in reducing uh, and then the final suggestion that I thought was a really great one that has been adopted by some school districts is to set up a multi-stakeholder task force to really talk about all of the impacts. One of the first people to speak asked what would happen if there was suddenly an outbreak in a school. Would the school be shut down? What about the whole school system? I think the decision to shut a school down is a complicated one, and it um, there are many aspects to it, and we would certainly work with um, the school if we had an outbreak within a school. And uh, typically an outbreak does not require an entire school to be shut down. Um, It's usually on a class by class basis, unless we're really seeing multiple classes affected. So um, I think the decision to shut an entire district down is probably one that uh, would be made at a much larger even county or statewide level. The town hall went on for hours, and most of the questions were about logistics related to what it will be like for students to go to school or not go to school this fall. But some of the questions really got to the heart of what these restrictions are for. There are some people who don't feel that this pandemic is really worth all of the efforts that we're doing. Let's hear one question and answer from the night that sort of captures a lot of why I feel it's important for so many of us to just listen right now. I hear a lot of comments about how the flu is just as bad as or just as bad or worse than COVID. And I've even heard people say that we didn't cure the AIDS virus and we still went to school. So what's the difference? And while I don't think these are majority opinions, they're certainly not mine, they're out there. And I'm wondering if you could speak to, yes, I guess kids don't experience COVID complications in the same way, but there's many adults that will be interacting with kids. Can you explain to anyone that might be listening and not understand how serious this disease is? Could you go into that for us? Sure. And I have a question so, for the school board as well. I, I That is a, a great question. So I did say that kids <laughs> seem to do pretty well with COVID, um, and that is absolutely true, but adults do not. Um, and there are a number of adults that have uh, been in the hospital for weeks um, or months um, and a number of people who have died. Uh, the I'm sorry, I don't have the, it's uh, over hundreds of thousands of people have died from this disease. Um, while certainly a large number of individuals do die from the flu every year, it's not nearly to the same degree. Um, and another difference is that we do actually have a, a reasonably effective vaccine for the flu. It's not 100%, as anyone knows, but it certainly um, does a lot towards keeping symptoms milder if you do come down with the flu. Uh, and, you know, many years we get a pretty good match, so we have a much lower flu incidence. Um, so I, it, this, just because kids do well it does not mean that this is not a serious disease. It, it absolutely is. And if I've given that impression, um, I, I want to dispel that right now. Uh, and I recognize that the community in a school is not made up just of kids. There are a large number of adults, um, many in that high-risk age group, that over 55, over 60-year-old group. Um, and, you know, we have preliminary evidence coming out 
that um, certainly kids in that 10 to 19 year old age group can transmit the disease to adults just as easily as adults can transmit it to each other. Um, so we, we don't have a great estimate for the younger age group about how easily they can transmit the virus to adults. Um, but that's probably because we just don't have a lot of kids in that age group yet and a lot of evidence one way or the other. That was Dr. Janice Bonds speaking at a July 27th school board forum about the opening of schools. And that's it for this installment of the Charlottesville Quarantine Report. We'll be hearing more about school policy in the days to come, as well as more from Governor Ralph Northam's press conference later today. I thank you for listening to this show. There's going to be some big news about my future in the days to come and how you can support this program and other efforts I am doing to get back to community journalism. I've been doing this for most of my career, and I feel it's important to get back to what I am really think I'm supposed to be here for, bringing you programs like this. I am hoping that I can hear from you in the future. Let me know what you think about this show and what you'd like to hear. This is a community program after all. I'm Sean Tubbs, the creator of the Charlottesville Podcasting Network. Thank you for listening. Thank you.